Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? This is our episode with Vishen Lakiani, of whom you may or may not have heard of. I promise you that after this episode, you will remember who he is. I read his book and loved it so much that we brought him onto the show. Best decision that I've made in show guest decisions in a long time because this is easily in our top 10 of the best episodes we've ever done. You can feel the passion, wisdom, and sheer knowledge that Vishen is relating. You guys will love this one. Please make sure you pick up a copy of Vision's book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. Also, get to our Facebook page, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow me on Twitter. All those can be done at The Human XP. One last thing, guys. We do everything we can to keep our show ad-free for you. If you get to our donate page, help us cover what we're doing here. Everything so far has been paid by me out of pocket and it's getting overwhelming. I spend 10 hours a day working between the show and my quasi real job. So help us keep this space ad free. Tell us that you value what we're doing. We want to keep delivering these home run level episodes for you. So we can only do that with your listener support. Thank you guys so much for listening. And without much further ado, here is Vishen Lakiani. The human experience has obtained the blueprint for retraining your mind. As we speak to my guest, Vishen Lakiani. Vishen, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Hi, Xavier. This is an honor. I, um, I'm honored to be here. Your story is remarkable. I, I, I love the book, but I mean, there's some people that might not know who you are and what you do. Uh, let's, let's talk about that from you know, going from being an engineer to founding Mind Valley. Give us that story. I graduated from the uh, University of Michigan way back in 1999. So you can kind of guess my age right now. I'm, I'm 40 years old. Now, when I graduated, my timing, in a word, kind of sucked because shortly after I graduated, the dot-com bubble burst. So I had moved out to the Bay Area with dreams of starting a startup, you know, getting funding, making a massive difference in the world, only to find all of those dreams completely dashed. I lost my, my savings, I lost all my money, um, and I couldn't get a job anywhere. So sometime in about 2001, around two years after graduation, I had officially been fired twice. I had lost two startups and I was so freaking in, in debt, I couldn't even afford an apartment. So I was renting a couch from a college student in Berkeley, one of those two-seater couches. So even my legs kind of dangled off at the end. And in desperation, I was sending my resume out to any company on Craigslist that would hire me. 
finally, one company offered me a job. But again, the economy was so bad. This was April. This was around April or so, 2001. Back, I remember that month alone, 14,000 people were laid off in the Bay Area. They were pink slip parties where people would go to try to network their way to some sort of salary. So I got the job, but the economy was so bad, they were not paying any base salary. So I had to pick up the phone and call lawyers and sell them on technology, technology to manage their law firms. And if the lawyer said no, if I didn't close a sale, I did not get paid that week or that month. And there were people in my company who just were not earning nothing. They, they were earning zilch. So in desperation, uh, because I couldn't close the sale, I had no idea what I was doing. I was a computer engineer trying to hack it as a guy who knew you know, business. I, I, I got depressed and I got online and I was searching and I can't remember what I was searching. Maybe it was hope, maybe it was um, to, to, to find meaning. Maybe it was why does life suck so bad? but I found a class on meditation. And the class on meditation was being taught by a pharmaceutical salesperson in Los Angeles. And she claimed that what she was teaching would dramatically help you with business, with life, with sales, all of these like hyper promises. But I thought, look, life sucks for me right now. I need to try something. So I flew down to LA, I, I took the class. And when I showed up, you know, I was the only person there. Apparently she wasn't very good at marketing herself. so. I took the class and what she shared with me was astonishing. I learned how to control my brainwaves. I learned how to channel intuition. I learned how to connect with people with deep empathy. I went back to work and Monday, so it was, I took class over the weekend. Monday I started work and by Friday I had had not just my best ever sales week, but I was double my, pre, my previous record. And I thought, whoa, this is kind of interesting. So I continued applying some of these ideas in work and I continued getting better and better and better. In four months, I got promoted three times. I was made director of sales. I was only 26 years old and I was made director of sales in a company of like a hundred people sent out to New York to hit their New York office. I continued experimenting with these techniques. I continued attending new seminars, reading new books, exploring just what my mind could do. And soon I could do the director of sales job and the business development manager job. I held two jobs simultaneously. And again, I was crushing it. Now at this point, you guys may be wondering, well, what exactly was I doing? So, I'll show you a couple of techniques I learned. One of the techniques that, that blew me away was a simple technique to tap into intuition. At our work, everyone would go to the San Francisco Public Library. They would be assigned to a city. So my city was, for example, San Antonio. I would check out the San Antonio Yellow Pages. And then I had to call every lawyer in the attorney section from a to Z in order, right? And hope that someone happened. I happened to catch him and at a convenient time where he would just listen to my whole pitch. So that's what everyone was doing. When I came back from this class, I tried something different. I wouldn't randomly call the lawyers. I would go into a meditative state of mind, place my finger on the phone book, run my finger names and call only people I felt a certain impulse with. So I was calling less lawyers, but interestingly, these lawyers were so much more likely to buy. It's as if I was guessing, but these guesses seemed to be correct. That was one, and that boosted my sales. The second thing I did that doubled my sales again was, was a simple empathy technique I learned. I learned to, to shut my eyes, go within, and set 
an intention with the lawyer before I called him. So if I was calling, say, Bob Jones, I would see Bob Jones in my mind's eye. I would imagine what he looked like. I would tell myself that this conversation was going to go smoothly, that Bob Jones would have time for me, that things would close if and only if. This was going to be a win-win for everyone concerned, that Bob Jones would see his firm go to newer heights because of our technology, that we would be able to serve him well, that the call would be pleasurable and meaningful for us. And the simple empathy visualization technique, again, double my sales. And so with no, with no sales training, I was able to just crush it. Now, after 18 months at this company, I, 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 I remember in my final month, I was 400% over quota um, and I decided to quit. I decided to quit because I felt that the company no longer fit my, my personal mission and I wanted to do something on my own. And I decided, look, education, according to Nelson Mandela, is the greatest way to change the world. Nelson Mandela has a famous quote on that. And I thought, I want to start an education technology company. And what better thing to get out to the world than meditation? So I started a simple e-commerce website. I, you know, back then it wasn't as easy to start an e-commerce website. So I had that advantage. It's quite, quite remarkable what you were able to do. You, you went from this sort of rock bottom state where you're, you're in your, your friend's apartment living on a couch and you, you take a meditation class, you realize the importance of kind of altering, changing your brainwaves so that you're more tapped into your intuition and, and what is the, the inner compass, that inner compass that we all have. And, and suddenly your, your sales are, are skyrocketing. And, and this is where, I mean, this is where I, I kind of cut you off. So, and this is the birth of Mind Valley. Is that right? This, well, it was when I quit that job and decided to start a simple e-commerce site selling and promoting meditation. That was the birth of Mind Valley. Mm. Okay, and it Mind Valley t- was taking losses for quite a while until it turned a profit. Is that is that correct? Well, it was two thousand three, and being a computer engineer, finally I found something to apply my skills to. So it wasn't as easy back then to start a online business. You did not have things such as Shopify and so on, but I could code my own checkout, my own customer um, CRM system and so on. And so I built my own website. I got to apply my programming skills, my meditation skills, and I built one of the world's first online websites for meditation. And immediately it took off. I remember my first customer was a woman called Barbara from Atlanta. This was like December 22nd, 2002. And it started out really slow. But slowly and slowly, the business grew. Today, Mind Valley is in a wide area of different fields. We do everything from apps to festivals. We have about 200 employees globally. But it's all focused around one thing. And it's still that one thing. And that one thing is spreading ideas in personal growth. Our vision. Our vision is to get these new ideas, these new areas of thought, new visions for health and wellness and meditation and mindfulness and better parenting and better relationships to as many people as we can. That's amazing. I mean, why, why Kuala Lumpur? Why Malaysia? Why would you? So, so Xavier, do you want to know the cleaned up story or the actual story? Let's, let's go with the actual story. Okay. So the actual story is, um, and it's only now, you know, it, it's, um, and I'm, I'm going to say this. It's only now that I'm safe telling you guys the actual story. So 
here's what you got to understand. After September 11, 2001, America was a very dangerous place than it is right now. And um, because of what had happened, because of that terrorism, there was a bit of a paranoia towards certain groups of people. Now, I had been born in Malaysia. Malaysia is a country that is about a 50, 60% Muslim population. I'm not a Muslim. I'm, I'm of Indian origin. Malaysia is a very diverse country in Asia. And I'd lived in the U.S. at that point for almost 10 years. I had graduated there, studied there, started a business there. So I was living with my wife, who's European. We were living in New York. And so back then, I had a different name. My name was Vishen Mohandas. And um, Mohandas is a very common Indian name. You know, Gandhi. Gandhi's name is Mohandas Gandhi. So I was named after my father, who was named after, I guess, Gandhi. But I showed up at JFK Airport one day, and the guy looking at my passport called me Vishen Mohammed. And I said, no, it's Mohandas. And he goes, no, it says Mohammed. I'm like, dude, read it again. It's Mohandas. <laughs> and he said, follow me. And so, I mean, I'm sure he was reading it super fast or whatever. He took me to a back room and he told me, um, you know, there are certain things about your patterns of travel and so on that look suspicious. We're going to have to investigate you. He kept me in that room for three hours and I was added to a watch list, a watch list called special registration. Now, special registration essentially meant that for the next five years of my life, I couldn't use certain airports. I, every time I wanted to enter or exit the United States, I would, be, I would have to go for an interview at the local airport or at a place near the airport called the Special Registration Center. And I would get fingerprinted, I would get photographed, I'd have to answer interview questions. And, uh, but, but it was worse than that. It wasn't just traveling. Every 30 days living in the United States, I had to report to the government. I had to stand in a long line, going sometimes four blocks, to be called up to a window to have my credit cards checked so to make sure, I don't know, to make sure I wasn't buying fertilizer or stuff, to be interviewed, to be interrogated, to have my picture taken. It was literally like living on parole. Wow. And we loved, we loved the United States. My wife and I wanted our kid born here, but, you know, we decided we couldn't live like this. And so we had a choice. We could move back to Europe, which is where she was from, or move back to Malaysia. Malaysia had beautiful warm weather, nice beaches. And so I thought, well, why not Malaysia? And that's what we did. Now, now after five years, after five years, the, uh, the, the U.S. Embassy in Malaysia got me off the list. I decided to change my name to a safer sounding name. And that's how my name is now, Vishen Lakhiani. Very interesting. And, you know, in your, in your book, you, you talk about struggle being this sort of launch pad to discovering new things, new ideas, to launching a person into, you know, kind of a, the next level of who they are. And I mean, one thing I wanted to kind of comment about the book, about something that you said while I was doing the research for the show, I think it was on Facebook that you posted this, that you said, you said that that being on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list wasn't enough. I, I'm paraphrasing. You said that you wanted this book to be a Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill level book that that carried through the ages. I mean, is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and let me tell you why. Today, any, any celebrity can launch a book and instantly, because they are a celebrity, it will hit the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, because that, of that initial press that comes out. Any guy with a business who has customers he buys from, you know, could instantly like promote the book all over his business and it'll hit the top. But those books will not have staying power. Within a week or two, the books will fall off the list. 
because to be a genuinely good book, books spread primarily through one, one way only, the most effective way, and that's word of mouth. We buy books because we hear about them from our friends. You know, you can get in a TV show, uh, but again, unless you're a celebrity, few people are going to buy your book. Um, I've, I've had friends who have been on talk shows like Good Morning America, and they will sell 100 books, right? So the celebrity power causes spikes, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a great book. What I wanted to write is a book that's genuinely good, a book that will pass from hand to hand, from parent to son, from employee to coworker, for generations. And the only way to do that is to write a genuinely good book that touches people. So that was one principle, but there's a second principle. And the second principle is your book must get noticed, which means that you got to either arouse love or hate, but not apathy. And that's why in my book, I write it in such a way where it's designed to make you really love the ideas, really want to follow them, really resonate with you, or you will absolutely hate the book because the book stands for something. It stands for it stands for humanism and ideas around humanism. It, you know, if you actually read the book, you will see that they are anti-Trump messages in the book. And I'm not, and it's not blatant, but it's in there because the book is stands. The book stands for humanism. The book talks about things that business books are not supposed to talk about, such as intuition. Right? Many people would never talk about intuition in a business book. I mean, this book is right now on number four on the New York Times business list, and and. I was told by my friends, don't say that. You can't say that because no one's going to take you seriously. But I've experienced it. And I feel just because we cannot explain a phenomenon doesn't mean it isn't real. So in that way, in the forward for the book, I, I have this sentence. I say, we grow through pain or we grow through insight, but never through apathy. Therefore, this book will be painful at times and it will be insightful at times but I didn't want to write something that you would ignore. Yeah, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of authors, a lot of bestsellers, and no one has, has, has had the vision of, of what you just stated. The, the long game vision of, you know, I want this book to reach more than just a, a list, a special list that people get on when they sell enough copies. And... I think that alone is just so, so profound to me. And you know, it's a good segue. Let's, let's dig into kind of what the book gets into. Can you tell us what is, what is the culture scape and you know, how, does, sure. how does the culture scape uh, affect the choices that we kind of are, are ingrained or hardwired to, to make? Okay, so firstly, I am fascinated by evolutionary biology. And one of the things you learn when you study evolutionary biology, and I was talking to a, to, to a friend of mine who's in the field, he said the, the, the planet got effed as soon as human beings evolved a brain with pattern recognition systems. Now, what this means is at a certain point in our evolution, we began to see the nuance of patterns, right? And part of this pattern recognition system allowed us to develop new ways of communicating with language. So an ape, an ape, right, could say, look, tiger. But a human being could say, hey, Bob, don't go by the river because I saw a tiger there five hours ago. So let's chill out here and wait and go back and fish tomorrow when that beast might go away. So as we develop these systems to recognize time, to recognize patterns, to communicate, human beings started living in two different worlds. And I just want to acknowledge there's a phenomenal book on this called Sapiens by Yuval Hariri. Okay, so we started living in two different worlds. And 
One world is the world of absolute truth. This is the world that says this rock is gray and it is hard. This berry is edible. That's absolute truth. It's true for everyone. But there's also a world of relative truth. And this world is the world of human language that exists in our heads. Human language allowed us to create our mythologies, our culture, our designation for what a man should do, what a woman should do. It allowed us to create rules and values and, and ways of assembling our tribe and communicating and hailing the leader. But the thing about these, this world of of language is that it is not real. It's not absolute truth. It's relative truth, meaning it's true for some people and not true for others. But the problem is all of us as human beings tend to take the world of relative truth very often as absolute truth. Think about how we blindly believe what our religions say or what our political leaders say or what we, or what we believe in the television media. We believe that you need a college degree to be successful. We believe that you need a nine to five job. We believe that if you don't follow this particular rule of our religion, this is going to happen to you. You believe that a man and a woman need to unify and have a marriage and have 2.5 kids and two cars in the garage, and then you are living in a normal family. The problem with the, problem with the culturescape is that the culturescape evolved as a mental construct to keep us safe. Because for 7,000 years, we lived in an unsafe world. We lived in a world where hunter-gatherers were competing with each other for food or tribes were fighting with each other for land. But today, we are living in the safest time in human history. We're living in a time when we are connected to the rest of the world through the internet. The rules that kept us safe, the culturescape, which is that collection of human beliefs, rituals, habits, no longer is as relevant to us as it was before. And therefore, we can question that culturescape. And I love this. I love that you are challenging the status quo. Just because in my own experience, I, I, I tend to see what people are doing and I do the exact opposite. And I mean, but a singular question that I have for you is, I mean, what do you, what do you say and how do you deal with um, a person who is kind of struggling with that, you know, they're, they're being judged by their family and they're being told that what they're doing is the wrong thing. They're, they're being told, no, you should be a doctor, lawyer, whatever. And, and yet inside themselves, they, they have this passion for something completely different. I mean, how do you, how do you personally recommend a, a person deals with that, that fight? Cause it is, well, it is a battle. Well, I, I'll, it, is, it is one of the hardest things that many people are going to go through. I was blessed to have parents who were progressive in many ways and, and were open-minded. Many people don't. I have a friend who was exiled from her family because she married a man of, the, of a different religion. But in the book, in, in chapter two of the book, I deal with this topic and I talk about why it is so important to stay true for your values. Now, here's basically what I said. And I quote, a friend of mine, um, um, a writer and TV actress by the name of Salma Sadora, right? And Salma says, the people who tell you that you need to follow a particular family or cultural belief or way of life love you. But essentially what they're saying is, look at me. I'm better because my chains are bigger. And you got to understand that it is your right to, to break those chains. You have to you know, recognize that they're doing it because they love you. Because like every other human being raised in the culturescape, they have an evolutionary drive to keep their offspring safe. Whether it's a teacher or it's a parent, it's their own natural tendency to keep you safe. 
but you have to do what is going to be right for you. Otherwise, you're living someone else's life. And that is the surest part to mediocrity and being miserable. Look, I became a computer engineer because growing up in Indian culture, see in the early 1990s, Bill Gates visited India and Bill Gates in India was seen as one of the greatest men in the world. And it caused, it actually, it actually changed Indian culture in some way. He was the richest man in the world. India was a poor country. And Indian parents started telling their kids, you must be a computer engineer. My grandfather told me, be like Bill Gates, be a computer engineer, you know, or, or at least work for Bill Gates. And so I ended up studying computer engineering. I ended up getting a job at Microsoft. I went through five years of my life getting the best grades I could, trying to learn computer engineering, I got that job at Microsoft. I was in Bill Gates' home, and I decided I wanted to quit. And Bill Gates is an amazing guy. He was having a barbecue in his home for all the fresh new Microsoft employees. But I realized I hated my job. And I realized if I continued down this path, I'd be working every day from 9 to 7 in misery. 11 weeks after joining Microsoft, I quit, and I joined something that really gave me a passion, you know, I, I, and, and it, 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 it led to great things in my life. I joined a nonprofit, basically. But I did that against my parents' advice. And they were, I'm sure they were upset for a while, but it led to who I am today. No parent tells their child, you know, why don't you start a meditation company? That's the surest part to be successful. So I think it's really important that we learn to be resilient, that we learn to, that these people love us, but that we forge our own path anyway. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I also work in the entrepreneur startup industry and uh, a lot of my friends uh, who went to very prestigious schools dropped, you know, $200,000 degrees to do their passion. And seeing that is both inspiring and the most scary thing that I've, that I've, I've ever witnessed because it seems like our culture now is almost moving towards that. It's almost books like yours and and others are pushing people to find their passion, to look at truly look at their passion because we we are sold this idea of immediately going into college after we we move out of high school, we we go to college, we we pick a degree, pick a major. It's the most forced thing that in our culture I think is a disease. And you know, you, you have these rules, uh, these bullshit rules that you, you call, um, do, let's define those. Let's, let's get into those. I mean, what are, what are some of these rules? That- so a, a rule is a bullshit rule that we adopt to simplify our understanding of the world. And so one of the biggest rules is what you just mentioned, the idea that you need a college degree to be successful, even the idea that you need college itself. I can tell you, Xavier, I no longer believe in college. I have an eight-year-old son. I don't care if he goes to college or not. What I care about is that he finds meaningful work. That's it, meaningful work. I don't even care if he follows his passion, right? His passion may be, because passions are something you can follow as hobbies. His passion may be to play the guitar. It's fine if he plays the guitar. Meaningful work, I think, is really what we should all be doing. I talk about that in the book, and I talk about, I, I, I share an exercise called the three most important questions that any of you can Google online that will teach you how to get there. But college degrees are a rule. The idea that you need to get married is a rule. The idea that you need to live in the same country that you were born in is a rule. There are so many things out there 
that we blindly accept because of convenience, because everyone else is doing it. Human beings, as I said, are pattern recognition machines. And one of the patterns that we tend to follow as a mental algorithm is if everyone else is doing it, it must be okay and it must be safe and it must be the part to do. And we do this to simplify our decision-making matrix, but it's not often the best way to truly being successful. So, Vish, I mean, you've you've been through a lot in your life, and you've you know you've there's a lot of up and up and downs with with owning your own company, and launching, and you you happen to be incredibly successful at what you're doing. Mind Valley is huge, and I mean, this book is is quite unique. It, how important is gratitude to you know? sustaining a mental health? It is probably one of the single most important things you can do. So let's put it this way, right? We evolved our physical systems way earlier than we evolved our conscious systems. Think about it this way. When we get up to go to work, we put on clothes, we spray cologne, we take a shower, maybe shave or shampoo our hair, get into a car, looking good, feeling good, ready to dash off to work. Many of us will start today with a healthy breakfast or um, working out at home or at the gym. We've evolved as human beings to practice these things and people who do so would swear by them. I don't know anyone today whom I work with who would get up and go, you know, I'm not going to take a bath today. You know, I'm going to skip that brush in my teeth. Bit. <laughs> Yet, if you go back, if you go back to the 1910s and the 1920s, did you know most Americans did not brush their teeth? In the 1920s, the U.S. Army issued a health alert because, because tooth decay was a serious issue among, in, in the U.S. Army. Even showering, many people did not shower in in centuries ago. Queen Elizabeth claimed that she only showered twice in her lifetime, the day she was born and the day she got married. So a lot of things that we take for granted right now were not normal back then. We've evolved our physical systems. So we, we clean ourselves before hitting out. We wash ourselves. Yet billions of people wake up every morning with their minds filled with gunk, with worry, with fear, with anxiety, with stress, with dread for the upcoming day. And they do nothing about it. We wash our bodies, but we don't wash our minds. We are trained to believe that our minds, that worry is normal, stress is normal, fears is normal, jealousy or anger or hatred towards someone else. Oh, that's just normal. You know, that waiter pissed me off. It's not normal. Just like Queen Elizabeth thought that her natural body odor was normal. And that people of that time thought that it was okay for a, a, even a rich man to bathe only once a, a, a week. And now we know better. We need to realize that worries, fears, anxieties are abnormal mental conditions. They are signs that your, your mind isn't in a healthy state. And that you can clean them within minutes, just like you can take a quick shower. And the solution to that is gratitude. Scientists have studied gratitude and said it has the greatest correlation with well-being over just about any other mental characteristic. Gratitude. Studies now show that gratitude make you of less prone to anxiety. It improves your heart performance. It makes you a more forgiving person. It creates better states of kindness. It improves your performance at work because it leads to happiness, which in turn leads to better productivity. So, Gratitude leads to things such as optimism. Other studies show that optimism, say in salespeople, can lead to a 55% better performance. Gratitude leads to happiness. Studies show that happiness leads to better performance in exams. Studies show that doctors who are primed to be happy are 19% better at diagnosis. 
So there are so many studies right now that it's almost a cliche to say practice gratitude. But honestly, it is one of the greatest things we can practice. Now, we don't hear about it in television commercials and so on because you cannot market gratitude. The pharma industry hasn't yet figured out a way to bill you for gratitude. They can bill you for (laughs) Prozac. I mean, you can go on a Prozac subscription plan, but studies actually show that gratitude can create just as good levels of happiness without the pharmaceutical side effects. And that's why gratitude is one of the most important and crucial things you guys can do. Okay. So, so you know, we, we're, we've built a framework. We've defined some of the things that limit us and we're, we're getting into the things that we can do to change that. Um, as, as a sort of side question, because I, I also want to learn about who you are and your life and, and your process, and I want to deconstruct that as much as possible. Um, you know, you in your book, you talk about kind of hanging out with Richard Branson, and you mentioned Bill Gates earlier, and uh, Tony Robbins. I mean, how, how are you able to kind of, how, how are you able to enter this sort of very elite, very niche circle of human beings that are changing the world? Well, a lot of it is because I, I have a simple principle in life, and that is you are the sum of the five people closest to you. So I like connecting with people who can inspire me, people who can uplift me. And I, I make these connections by being of value to these people. I'll give you an example. Peter Diamandis runs the XPRIZE Foundation. He's probably one of the greatest entrepreneurs on the planet today. A man who thinks incredibly big. Thanks to him, we have the private space travel industry. Thanks to him, we have XPRIZE solving world problems. He also founded Singularity University. He's now started Planetary Resources, which is mining for asteroids. I saw Peter Diamandis speak and I told him, you know, you really inspired me. And I, I asked him, I, I would love to be able to learn more from you. What can I do? And he told me about a seminar that he runs. And it's an expensive seminar. It's like 10 or 20K to attend. It's called Abundance 360. He told me that he runs nonprofits. And if I was an entrepreneur and I had, you know, excess capital that I wanted to put to a good cause, I could donate to his nonprofit. And I thought that was a really good idea. And so every year, I actually donate a large sum of money to the XPRIZE Foundation. And as a reward for this, I have Peter as a friend. I got to interview him for the book. I get to spend, you know, at least seven days or so with him on XPRIZE events and XPRIZE trips. And I get to learn from him and other inspiring people through XPRIZE. And, you know, it's a large sum of money. And some people might say it's a ridiculous cost. But the fact is, I'm giving back to the world because XPRIZE is probably one of the most high-performing NGOs out there in in terms of like value for dollar donated. But at the same time, I get to meet with people who inspire me and never fail to remind me to dream bigger. Now, any of us can do the same thing. I had to start somewhere. And I started started this whole idea of networking and connecting with great people in 2005. In 2005, there was um, um, a guy I know who was an author. And, he, and at that point, I had a blog. I simply had a, a blog on personal growth. And this guy who was an author had a program out. I can't remember what the program was called, but it was a really cool program on goal setting. And um, he had his team reaching out to bloggers saying, uh, asking if anybody you know, would write a blog post about him. And he wasn't a really big name, but I did anyway. I tested out his program. I wrote a blog post. And I, I think I, I remember, I think I helped him sell like $30,000 worth of his program. 
and he was happy. And he said, you know, I'm doing a networking event and um, maybe you can come and you can, and you know, he, he told me flat out, I'm not qualified for his networking event, but I could come as a volunteer. And I did, I went and I volunteered. There I met more people and I asked them, how can I add value to you? Is there anything I can do? Could I interview you? Could I, you know, could I, could I share a blog post about you? Could I volunteer for you? And I worked my way up over 11 years and anyone can do that. It's really about if you want to get, if you want to network with the, with great minds, figure out how can you add value to them? Hmm. Yeah. Many people, many people do it the other way around. I, I go to conferences and I have people coming up to me going, Hey, you know, I have this great business idea. Could I get you on a phone call for 30 minutes so you can advise me? <laughs> and, and it's just impractical. I mean, every good entrepreneur, every good CEO knows that our time is worth tens of thousands of dollars per hour to our business. If I get on a phone call with someone and advise someone for 30 minutes, that's actually costing me money. But yeah. Many people don't get it. One in 10 actually ask me how they can add value to me. Nine out of 10 ask me for stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's got to be tough because, I mean, you, you've done a lot. People admire you. And so they... You know, they they just don't ha they don't have that ability to kind of see past you know the first layer, which is you know that that boundary. If you're asking me for something, you're not you're not helping me, and you know, right. and it's it's like you you can't go around and help everyone that you even if you want to, you, you can't go and help every single person that asks you to help right. them. And 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 Xavier, if 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 I can share one thing, I just realized I missed out on the best possible tip for your audience. And the best possible tip is start, be a connector. If you want to connect with incredible people, be a connector. So here's what I did. In 2010, I decided to start my own festival. I observed that, you know, many people would go to entrepreneurship seminars and they would skip the lecture speaking spot part and hang out in the bars because they love connecting. So I started my own festival. Back then it was called Awesomeness Fest, but now it's called A-Fest. But I invited 250 people, entrepreneurs and people who had, you know, were doing great things in the world to come and hang out together at an event in Costa Rica. I put up my own money. So I was gambling my own money that this was going to take off or I was going to lose money. And actually 250 people came. I went up to incredible speakers like Chip Conley, who started, you know, um, the Joie de Vie hotel chain and is now part of Airbnb. And I asked them if they would come speak. And I put together this incredible thing. And now every year, it happens every year, thousands of people apply to attend AFES where they can come together and connect with each other. But by putting myself as the founder of it, I get access to all of these great minds. Today, 80% of my friends are AFESters. And, um, you know, it's turned into a really, really remarkable thing that anybody could do this. Anybody could decide that, you know, I want to start a, a book society within my city where people are going to come together and discuss the latest business book they're going to read. Or I want to start a, a CrossFit movement where people who want to get better at health can come together and work out together. And it's a really, really, really great philosophy. I started in a small way and I grew and grew and grew to now having my own festival, being part of the XPRIZE Innovation Board and so on. But I did it all in 10 years. You start with a small group and you expand from there. I love it. I, I truly, I, I, the vision and the, the aspect of, you know, really, you really have this talent of, of seeing beyond, you know, you're seeing 10, 12 moves ahead and you know, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, let's, has there vision, has there been 
any single moment where, I mean, has this happened yet for you where you have said, okay, I, I've made it or, or is that, you know, an elusive kind of thing where you're still kind of, kind of pushing the edge? No, no, no. You're, you're, that's, so that's a trick question. Okay. And it's a trick question because of this modern goal setting. I talk about this in chapter, um, chapter six of the book, modern goal setting is screwed up. We teach people that they need to pursue goals. But the problem is many of the goals that people are pursuing are goals from the culture scape, including the goal, be an entrepreneur. That is a bullshit goal. Most entrepreneurs are miserable. They thought they wanted to do it because they wanted freedom or they wanted to build a great product or they wanted the experience of being a leader or they wanted, you know, the satisfaction of being looked up upon only to find that they are trapped into the equivalent of having a day job working crazy long hours, but now with added risk. And if you don't believe me, ask most entrepreneurs. I mean, it, most people who listen to your podcasts, when they think of entrepreneurs, they think of startup entrepreneurs who got funding on, and, and so on. But that's not the case. The guy who runs the local grocery store or you know, opens up a restaurant is an entrepreneur as well. A guy who's an Uber driver trying to earn a living on his own as a contractor is in many ways an entrepreneur. Most people are barely surviving. Now, the reason for that is because we are trained to chase means goals rather than end goals. So a means goal is a means to an end. Get a college degree, be an entrepreneur is a means goal. What we are really chasing though are the end goals. The end goals are, I want a life of freedom. I want to live in a way where I can work 20 hours a week and spend 20 hours with my son or wife or daughter. I want to write, I want to I want the experience of being able to inspire people daily. Now, when you set end goals, you open yourself up to unusual means to get there, but you don't get trapped into the means of the culture scape. One of my end goals, Xavier, was to be able to stay in a gorgeous luxury hotel every six months and have my children and my family with me and experience life and have friends with me. And when I set that goal, I had no freaking idea how to do it. It seems so counter to being the CEO of a large company, of a 200-person company. Yeah. But then the idea for AFES came to me. And now every six months, I am staying in a luxury hotel. I was just in Greece, and in six months from now, it's in the Mexican Riviera. And I'm there with 200 people who are attending AFES, and I'm there because of the host, and everything is paid for. And because I'm bringing so much business to the hotel, I get the presidential suite. And so somehow this bizarre goal that I put down on paper when I was, you know, when I was in my early 20s came true, but I set it out as an end goal. It was something I wanted for the end in itself. So when you understand the difference between means goals and end goals, you learn to hack life, to find faster optimized routes to what truly speaks to your soul, what truly makes you happy. Okay, now back to your question, right? Is it ever enough? As long as you're attaining your end goals, it will be enough. But if you're chasing means goals, it's never going to be enough because means goals always mean there's something next. A means goal is something you do so you can attain something, so you can attain something. You study hard in high school, so you can get into a good college, so you can do well in your LSAT, so you can get that law degree, so you can start your own law firm, so you can be a lawyer and be a fancy, fancy bigwig, only to realize that. 50% of lawyers, I, I read this recently, suffer from depression because their jobs are miserable and they're wondering, how did I get here? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's just such a profound idea and I love it. Um, you know, you, 
in the book you talk about bending reality and you know you you mentioned you just mentioned uh, hacking happiness you know how do we do this so this is one of the more controversial aspects of the book this is probably the part of the book where so if you look at my book on Amazon, you'll see the reviews are really interesting. It's, it's 87 or 90% five-star reviews, but there are also lots of one-star reviews from people who blatantly hate the book. This is one of the things they hate about the book. I suggest in the book that reality is malleable, that we cannot explain it, but to some degree, our minds influence our reality. And I'm not talking about the simplistic idea of programs such as The Secret. I, I find that very simplistic. I don't know what causes it, but I believe that we can bend reality. I believe that luck is within our control. And I believe this because I keep seeing instances in my life and instances in the lives of other really successful people I know that shocks us. We don't know how this coincidence or synchronicity came onto our lap, but we know that we wanted it to and we were focused on it in the right way. And I suggest a formula for bending reality. And the formula is this. Have amazing visions pulling you forward, exciting things that you want to do. But at the same time, be happy now. So a lot of people think you got to focus your thoughts and think and think and think and think and think about that thing that you want. Often no, because if you are in the wrong frame of mind, your thoughts about it are thoughts of worry or fear or anxiety that it's going to come with you. You must be in the state that I call um, the state of bending reality, where you have these bold visions of what you want to do in the world, but the second ingredient is you are not attached to those visions. If they come, they come. If they don't come, they don't come. They are nice to haves. Rather, you are happy now. You have made it. You don't need anything more. Now, it's a tricky state to get, to, to get in because society doesn't train us to be in this state. But if you believe that you have made it, that you're happy now, you find that the visions that you want come to you but you've got to be unattached from those visions. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a big philosophy. I've given one-hour speeches on it. You can, you can Google me and you'll find several speeches I've, I've, I've done that, that talk about this, you know, for people who want to learn it. Yeah. But, um, but, but that's the magic ingredient. And I strive every single day to put myself in that state, to have big goals and visions pulling me forward, but to be happy now, to be happy in the present. Is there, is there a technique or is there a sort of ritual that you use to sort of elicit these ideas, these, these creative inspirations that you have? I mean, is, is there any specific task or way that you come up with new, fresh ideas? Yes. So you can train the mind. You can train the mind to tap into intuition and inspiration. I developed a, a 15 to 20 minute meditation. I call it the six phase. It is unlike other meditations because it's not about mantras or rituals or any of that other stuff that turns people off. I don't believe in clearing your mind or any of that. Rather, it's six mental exercises that you do. And um, the six phase has become very, very, very popular. If you download Mind Valley's meditation app, Omvana, it's installed free. You can get online and, and Google talks. Um, I, I gave, um, there's a major conference called Wisdom 2.0 in Silicon Valley, and I gave the second most highly watched talk ever at their conference after Eckhart Tolle, so you can find that on their channel. And it's about the sixth phase. And I also included a chapter on it in my book. And if you buy the book, you get a free course that teaches you this method. But I'll, I'll summarize it. Basically, just like a character in a video game. Have you ever played those old 90s video games where you got to, you know, 
where, where your character is on a quest and you got to up-level, you got to up-level your charisma, up-level your endurance, up-level your skill. You remember what I'm talking about, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. So identify that in the human world, there are six things that we constantly have to up-level. And this 15 to 20-minute meditation is called a six phase because it takes you through two to three-minute exercises in order to up-level yourself. The first is compassion. If we create more compassionate human beings, the world becomes a more beautiful place. And up-leveling yourself in compassion means you see other human beings as beautiful, as amazing. You're kind to that waiter who might mess up your order. You are generous and empathetic to your family and your coworkers. So compassion is the first one. So we teach a simple idea for compassion. Second is gratitude. We've spoken about that. The third is forgiveness. People don't get this, but forgiveness When you learn how to forgive, it actually boosts your endurance. Studies have shown it boosts things such as your ability to do a vertical jump. Others have said it boosts IQ. So forgiveness is a really key part, and it makes you a, um, um, a more gentle, happier human being. Then, so those three phases are about happiness in the now, right? The first ingredient of bending reality. We then go on to phase four, five, and six, which is the second ingredient of bending reality, which is about having a vision. So phase four is about seeing yourself three years into the future. Most of us underestimate what we can do in three years and overestimate what we can do in one year. So this phase helps you craft that vision for yourself. Phase five is picturing your perfect day unfolding. And phase six is feeling blessed. It is, you know, if if you have a religion and you pray to a particular God, if you're an atheist and you just, you know, want to feel supported, Phase six is where you, you feel that feeling of support, whether it's coming from within, from your family, or from a higher power. So this particular meditation takes you through those six phases, and it up-levels you. And people who do it say it's like taking a magic pill every day. If there is a pill, remember that movie Limitless? If there is a pill that gets you there, it's this. And people underestimate it because it's free and it's easy. And we shouldn't do that. Um, but it's one of those things which I think is one of the biggest changes in my life. When I started doing this, it changed me and it transformed my business and it transformed how I get out there in the world. And every success I've had is because of this one daily habit that I do every single day, or at least it's the single greatest correlation to any success I've had. I'm blown away. I, I, I truly, I mean, I think that this is the, the next level that we, I mean, you have developed a blueprint for this sort of mechanism of not only reaching this sort of idea of success, but also attaining a sense of fulfillment in what you're doing. And as you mentioned earlier, there's not, it's not this end goal. It's, it's this, you know, it's this process of it and having the happiness now realizing that you've made it already, you've already made it. And I love that about this book just uh, truly amazing. Um, there's a chapter in your book called be unfuck withable. (laughs) I, I, how can I not bring this up? Be unfuckwithable. How how would how did you come up with that name for well, this chapter? It's a it's another one of those things, right? You know, people people tell me how how can you teach meditation and use the f word as if it's some magic word that creates bad vibes? No, fuck is an incredible word. It 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 it, it is the idea. You know, it's it's what 
causes us to be born. It's lovemaking. It just has a bad connotation. But it's how you use the word. And I use it here as a form of power, being unfuckwithable. It means being immune to judgment, to criticism, but also being immune to praise. Because if you give someone the ability to lift you up through praise, you also give them the ability to control your emotions through criticism, right? Unfuckwithable means being steady in who you are. It means being able to forgive people in the past who have wronged you. So it's about healing your past through forgiveness, and you control that. Those people may be, you know, they, 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 they may have done you wrong, and you don't have to wait for them to come and apologize. You can forgive them. Forgiving your past is part one. The second part of un- being unfuckwithable is being grounded in the present. It's having mindfulness practices at your disposal. So let's say you are, someone cuts you off and flips you the finger while driving. It doesn't shake you up. You're cool that way. So it's being grounded in the present. And third, being unfuckwithable means having, being, being confident about your future and knowing that the choices you make, you are making them for yourself and not because someone is pushing you in that direction, not because you're following someone else's rules. So that's really what this chapter is about. It's, it's, a, it's a way of getting you strong so that you can go and chase and pursue those crazy dreams you want while being grounded and happy in the present and not being pushed around by the culture scape and other people's expectations of you. Yeah. Wow. So huge. Uh, I mean, Vishen, so, okay, let's, let's put it all together, man. I mean, let, let, we've created, we've, we've gone through the culture scape. We've, we've identified this idea of, you know, not doing, not doing the things that people maybe expect of us. And we move through these levels and I, I feel like they're stages and it's almost like an awakening. You're waking up to the matrix or something, but you talk about living your quest, you know, and, and how to kind of live for a life of meaning. And what, I mean, what does that, what does that translate into for you? Well, again, you got to remember, I'm a geek writing a book. I'm a computer engineer. I grew up being called a nerd. I played computer games and hacked them all my life. And Living Your Quest actually comes from my, my computer games. If you, if you think about great computer games, there's always this quest that someone goes on. And I believe all of us are here on the planet to find our quest. And I don't think that there is a, that there is a particular quest that a higher power puts us on earth and demands that we have to do. The quest is something personal. But a quest is basically this. It is something that you're going to do on the planet that will leave the planet better off for the rest of humanity. The problem is many people forget this when it comes to defining their life or their life vision. And they end up in situations where they're actually working on projects, working for companies which are not doing good for the planet. So in the book, I introduce a concept called Humanity Plus and Humanity Minus. Humanity Plus are companies and businesses that are helping push the human race forward. You, Xavier, with your podcast that's inspiring people is Humanity Plus. Elon Musk and Tesla is Humanity Plus. Apple that creates great consumer electronics and beautiful design is Humanity Plus. But there are also companies out there that, let's be honest, they need to die out because they're actually producing businesses and services that are negative to the world. And I'm just going to call out one company right now because we don't see that it is a humanity minus company. 
That's Coca-Cola and Pepsi and, and McDonald's. Coke sells high fructose corn syrup, which is dangerous to the human biology, but they market it as happiness in a can. They repeatedly deny and buy their own scientific studies that show that Coke doesn't really cause diabetes. They are continuously trying to market it to teenagers. I have a friend who's one of the most brilliant men in Silicon Valley who was approached by Coke. And he told, and they asked him, can you help us figure out a way to get this to more teens? And he said, essentially, fuck off. No money <laughs> is going to be able to buy my soul like that. But think about it, right? People work for Coke. I, I have a friend recently who quit Coke and he said, you know, when you're working for Coke in your first couple of weeks, you go through this moral dilemma and you want to quit. And they get you to stay by paying you 30% above any other job you could possibly get. And my message in my book is, don't fall for that. I mean, we are facing a world right now where, for the first time, I believe we are handing a world to our children that is worse off than the world we inherited. You look at millennium salaries, for example. Millenniums, for the first time, are worse off than the previous generation. And where global warming is a serious threat. And obesity is another serious threat. The degradation of our food is another thing. And so we need people today who are going to stop and say no to bullshit jobs for humanity negative companies, for companies that were started in a different era when the only thing that mattered was shareholder value. And we need people to join the X-Prizes, the Teslas, the the companies of the world that are actually helping push humanity forward. Now, I'm not saying you need to save the world. All I'm saying is don't fuck it up for the next generation. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Bravo, man. I, I truly, truly respect everything that you're saying and doing. Um, you know, I, I, I want to sort of, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of material and, there, and there's more in your book, but I, I want to give you a chance to, I mean, for the person out there that, that may be listening to the show and is struggling, you know, they're, they're struggling, however that struggle may be, what would you, what do you say to that person? How would you kind of lift them up? Like, how do you give a, a person hope that is trapped in a job they hate, l working for something that they don't believe in? feel like they have a passion to do something great for the world. What do you, what do you say? To, what single thing can you say to that person? So, so I, I want them to understand the concept of Kensho and Satori. It's a very important idea I talk about in chapter 10. Now, we grow. So Kensho and Satori comes from the Reverend Michael Beckwith, who teaches at the Agape Spiritual Center in Los Angeles. It's a, it's a church for humanism that is it's just incredible. But one of the ideas he shares, and I, and I quote him in the book, we grow, our soul will give us an opportunity to grow through Kensho moments or Satori moments. Kensho is growth through pain. Satori is growth through inspiration. Now, the problem is most people are not fully tapped into their soul. And so when we need to get steered into the right direction, the soul will go, you know, I'm going to make, I'm going to mess things up for a moment here so that you learn a lesson. And so we fall sick. We fall sick and we get hospitalized, but we learn to eat better and take better care of our bodies. A business we start fails, but it teaches us something and it gives us the idea for our next business. We fall in love and someone breaks our heart, but it helps us then later find the man or woman we are really meant to be with. All of us go through Kensho moments. I've gone through so many Kensho moments, you know, from having my health screwed up 
to having my heart completely cut apart, to losing multiple businesses, each of that is a stepping stone. But after a while, you, gotta, you learn to see the patterns. And I've now learned that Kensho is simply a way to autocorrect. And when you see pain as a way to autocorrect, you realize that you start to adopt this Eastern philosophical idea that there is no pain. There only is what is. And what is is often just a way to help put you in the right path. Now, when you start seeing this, you open yourself to more Satori. Your soul goes, oh, he's listening. He's not wailing and whining about that illness or being stuck in hospital. He knows that, you know, this is just part of the plan to get him to wake up. And when you start doing that, you start moving towards Satori moments, which is where you awaken. You move into the right direction through insight. Satori moments are beautiful. I'll be meditating and I get a Satori moment. I'll be in the shower and I get a Satori moment. And that Satori moment is, is something where I learned about a new way I can add value to the world, a new way I can be happy. Recently, I was in Greece, right, for A-Fest, and I got invited to visit a refugee camp. And I got to see these Afghan and Syrian and, and Iraqi refugees living in, in the most miserable conditions. And I got to talk to the children there, learn about their lifestyle, and I realized that was a Satori moment. I realized I wanted to do something for this. So I spoke to people in the camp and they are putting on a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds and I'm helping promote that campaign. I'm helping them raise $50,000. And it, was, it wasn't painful, it was an insight. It was an insight on how I could add value to the world. And when you learn to live life like that, life becomes beautiful. You start uh, seeing these awakenings. You start having these opportunities just show up that make you happy that give you joy, that show you how you can add value to the world. And that's when you're really living a life that is extraordinary. Love the message, man. Love it. I mean, we're, we're approaching the end here, Vishen. We, I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, what is something that you would say extraordinary people have in common? Extraordinary people have a vision for their life, a vision for how they want to contribute to the world, how they want to grow, a vision for what experiences they want to have in their life. But here's the thing, right? That vision isn't just about them. That vision involves pushing the human race forward to some degree. And it doesn't mean you have to start a huge company. It could be a vision for how you want to grow, a vision for the beautiful experiences you want to have of travel, and a vision for your contribution because you're just going to be the best mom or dad you can be and raise amazing kids for 18 years, and that's good. That makes you extraordinary. But there's a second ingredient, and that second ingredient is they have made it. Exactly like you said, they have made it. And by made it, it means that while they have that vision, where they are right now, they are happy. They are unattached to that vision. So if you have to ask me for that definition, that's really it. Extraordinary people love life. Life is unfolding for them in this beautiful way. It's as if coincidences and synchronicities fall on their lap. They are happy where they are. There's nothing that they are chasing. They know that to chase is to push away. Mm. And they have these visions for how they want to expand their life and grow their life. And these visions are coming, are coming to them with ease. And a friend of mine recently shared with me a quote. And I want to I share this quote with you. Um, sure. Give me one. Give me one second to just pull it up. Okay. Yeah. No problem. Because this quote really best explains extraordinary people, and um, this quote 
actually comes from an Afghan refugee, which is really interesting. Many people have heard of this quote, but they didn't know that the guy who shared this quote was an Afghan refugee from the Mongol invasion of the 13th century AD. The Afghan refugee's name, we know him in the West as Rumi. And today, Rumi is the, probably the most, I think he's the best-selling poet in America. Mm-hmm. How, how interesting is that, right? That the best-selling po- poet in America was an Afghan refugee. So Rumi said this, when I run after what I think I want, my days are a furnace of distress and anxiety. If I sit in my own place of patience, what I need flows to me and without any pain. From this, I understand that what I want also wants me, is looking for me and attracting me. There's a great secret in this for anyone who can grasp it. Yeah, wow, what a profound, profound quote. What this means, the way I, you can perceive the, the poems of Rumi in many different ways. How I see this is to understand that, if you, that what you want also wants you. I believe there is a life force, uh, the ancient Greeks called it a Gaia, um, um, energy force around the world. And if we want what is best for humanity, that thing wants it too and will cooperate with you and set in, set in motion the wheels and the mechanisms, the Kaizen and the Satori moments to help you get there. But you don't have to chase it because as soon as you chase something, you become, in the words of Rumi, a furnace of distress and anxiety. And this breaks that flow. And this is why it's so important to be happy in the now, to have those things, but to not be attached to them, to know that where you are right now is good. You are complete. You are, you are enough. You have it. You have everything you need to be happy right now. And when you can put yourself in the state, that's when magic happens. Wow. What a, what a beautiful note to, I think, close on here, Vishen. I, I really think it's remarkable what you've done. And actually, there's, there's one last thing. And I think out of everything in your book, I think this was one of my fit, most favorite things that you, that you kind of suggest and talk about. You talk about um, future dreaming and kind of daydreaming and seeing ourselves doing the things we love, seeing ourselves succeeding, seeing ourselves and using it as a type of affirmation in which we have already attained the things that, you know, we are seeking and using it in a way in which we kind of float, you know, with it in a, in a, in a daydream. And it's, it's very eloquent the way you put it. Right. Well, it's, it's an exercise I do every single day. Future dreaming is actually stage four in the six-phase uh, meditation. And what I do is I think about one aspect of my life and where I want that aspect to be in three years. Right now, for me, it's owning a really beautiful home that I can share with my kids and my wife in California, facing the sea. And I see myself standing on my balcony, reading a good book, Uh, sorry, sitting in my balcony, reading a good book, or gazing out at the sea, listening to the crashing waves. And I just experienced that for a moment. That's my vision. That's my goal. I have no anxiety. I'm not chasing it. It's just something I want to see and have in my life in three years. And I find that as I start doing this, opportunities start emerging that get me there. And this has really been the story of my life. I would start by thinking about where I want to be three years from now in a a non-attached sort of way, And then the opportunities would unfold as long as I was in a state of happiness in the now. So that's future dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I, kind of want to keep asking you questions, Vishen. I'm learning so much from this conversation. I mean, is there, 
is there one thing that you have personally struggled with? Is there any single kind of idea or thought or just anything that was yeah. part of the grind? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I struggled with self-esteem like most of my life. I, I thought I was unattractive. I thought I was a geek. I didn't think I was, I was worthwhile. I'm a guy who never actually, you know, had a girlfriend until I was 22. Cause I, I was just so, I just had poor self-esteem and, um, I, I grew up, I, I, I grew up with bad eyesight. <laughs> I was legally blind without my glasses until I had surgery. I grew up with a skin problem. So my face was just covered with acne. Um, I, I had chronic acne and all of these things just really gave me low self-esteem for the first half of my life until I was maybe 23, 24. And like many other people, I know many other people out there, even people listening right now may face this. It was a Kaizen moment. It was opportunities for me to grow, to learn. Um, for example, that skin problem exposed me to books on healing, on uh, energy healing and visualization. And I learned that the skin is one of the most responsive organs to imagery therapy. This got me experimenting with meditation and visualization. And after five years of chronic skin disease, I healed my skin in five weeks using a visualization method. Wow. That wow. opened me up to the power of visualization, which is stuff I now share in my book. So if I hadn't had that skin disease, perhaps I would never have written this book because I would never have started exploring all of these different options. So I really believe that everything in life happens as a, you know, as, as a wave to push you forward. It's just how you choose to view it. Yeah, man. Wow. I mean, how long did it take for this book to get hit the bestseller? Um, it, it, it hit it hit the list in about a week from being released. Yeah. I mean, it's that good. I, I highly recommend it. Everyone, everyone who's listening, the, the book is called the code of the extra extraordinary mind. The author is Vishen Lakhiani. Am I saying your last name right? Vishen? Right. Vishen Lakhiani. And uh, Vishen, where can, where can people find your work? Get to Mind Valley. Well, you can learn about Mind Valley on, well, the first thing I recommend is go to mindvalleyacademy.com. That is our main website. That's where we, we bring you all of these amazing teachers and such. And um, um, you can get the book from Amazon. You know, just go to Amazon and search for it. Code of the Extraordinary Mind. This is the human experience. Vishen, thank you so much for being here. What a wonderful, amazing conversation. Truly remarkable to, to have you in, in my presence. Or it's, it's really an honor to, to speak to you. And your, and your work is really remarkable. And I think it, it, you know, it's hitting the bestseller list, which, you know, which might not mean anything. But I think it's helping a lot of people already. So, thank you. yeah, thank you so much. This is the human experience, guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we will see you guys next week.